Hello, everyone. Welcome to Commentaries from the Edge. I am delighted and honored to introduce you to Reverend Oliver Bowie, a very special and important local pastor here in Los Angeles, California. He is the Minister of Social Justice in the spirit of carrying on the beloved community, which is the inspired by and the words by the late John Lewis. Reverend Bowie is a pastor in a church and a very public person in Los Angeles, California as an activist in the community. He's a member of various many community service groups here. And at the same time, uh, a very distinguished member of the executive board of the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health Faith-Based Advocacy Council. So welcome, Reverend Bowie. Thank you so much for taking the time from, I know, a very busy schedule, a very demanding schedule, and for having a conversation about a topic that the good news is, is being talked about a lot, which is the African-American male and racism. And maybe somehow the talking can lead to some remedies. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Um... Karen, uh, for uh, giving me the honor and privilege to share today, and hopefully um, during this period, I can share some insights on my personal experience as an African-American male, and uh, for my experiences, the good and the bad, and uh, what I could give my insight on how we could probably reach some remedies. Also, I would like to say that it will not be a doom and gloom story for me that I must admit that for myself, my journey has been a tough journey at times, but for the most part, I've had a pretty good journey and I would not be the best person to use as basically the average um, African-American because I've been able to uh, achieve some things in life I've been able to uh, accomplish quite a few things uh, in the area of social justice. I've been able to accomplish things as a pastor uh, and a minister of the gospel. So I've been able to obtain some privileges that many African-Americans, males, unfortunately, have not been able to uh, attain. And uh, I've been able to navigate in life where I have not been caught in many of the traps um, that many of the African-American males find themselves in, uh, such as prison, such as drugs, and such as teen fathers and things of that nature. So um, as we proceed, you know, feel free to ask me any questions or what have you that you have on your mind, Karen, and I'll give you uh, some responses and just share my personal experiences uh, which have been quite vast, too. Well, that is 
that is what uh, we're thrilled to talk about is your vast experiences. And also, I would say, you know, it's your accomplishments that gives you the opportunity to have a voice for those that are not able to have a voice. And because of your uh, background and, and the struggles that you've overcome and the things that you have been able to achieve, I think you have uh, the broadest view, the, the longest view. And I think therefore you're speaking to people that may be very ignorant about you know, several different issues that we're gonna talk about today. And I know one of the things you, you had talked to me about a long time ago was you might say the idea of the African-American creation story, which is really talked about more now than for a long, long time, which is how slaves were brought to this shore and how from the very beginning, the African-American male was discounted and mistreated. Yes. Well, I think that it's important um, that we realize that the African-American male was brought to the shores of America as a slave, as property. And unfortunately, for many people uh, today, that view has not changed, where many of them, although supposedly, quote unquote, we are free, many people still see us as slaves or see us as property or discount the African-American male um, and so much injustice still persists today. Um, and before I proceed, I'd like to give those who are listening a little history on who I am, and that may help you understand my perspective and give you a little more knowledge on how I come to the different conclusions that I come to and how I find myself in this space. Uh, first of all, let me just say that I was born in the South. I was born in North Carolina in a little town called Hickorydale. Um, if you want to point a reference, the closest place that's near there that you would probably know would be Fayetteville, North Carolina, where the Army base um, Fort Bragg um, exists. So that's the area in which I was born. And I was born in the year of 1959. And it was a segregated South. Uh, the Jim Crow laws were still in effect. Segregation was alive and doing well. And for a young black male born at that time, there was not a great deal of hope, you know. So, um, but for some reason, not some reason, I would say the chief uh, thing in my life, I came from a family that believed in God. And if I would say any driving force or one of the most important forces in my life has been God. And I would like to say that I was very intelligent, but the truth of the matter, I would say that God has kept me and has mm -hmm. watched over me and guided me. And that is why I have been blessed because of the power of God in my life. And I do everything that I can to live out my faith, not preach it. I'm a preacher, but I've learned that I'd rather live a sermon than preach a sermon every day. And so born in the segregated South and at the age of six though, my family migrated to New York City where I spent uh, most of my years of growing up and that was Bronx, in the Bronx. Bronx, New York is where I ended up growing up. Now, let me tell you, that was not an easy transition coming from the South 
And I had a thick Southern accent. And New Yorkers are not the most friendly people, unfortunately. And they can be tough people. So I had to learn how to adapt and adjust in the concrete jungle, as, as it's called. And thank God, I'm not going to give you a lot of details. I was able to escape without being caught in many of the traps of many of the young men in my day who were trapped in maybe gangs and may have lost their life or got in trouble. Uh, graffiti. And, uh, and let me say this. I'll tell you now. I was a part of those things, but I was fortunate enough not to be caught or entrapped where those things end up keeping me from moving forward. And believe it or not, Karen, you probably wouldn't believe this. Uh, I'm going to tell you something that most people don't know. I'm also a pioneer rapper. So I was there in the Bronx at the birth of the hip hop movement. So I understand it from the genesis and I've performed with some of the um, most famous, uh, you know, um, people like Grandmaster Flash um, and the Furious Five. It was only three of them when I performed and I performed with them one night at the Audubon um, Theater there, the place where Malcolm X was assassinated. But well, I could believe that because <laughs> why not? You're a multi-talented person. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh God had, better, had had a more important plan for my life. And uh, that's how I find myself, why I find myself where I am today talking with you. God had a plan that I would be a minister, a preacher, and a preacher who would stand for justice, who would stand for righteousness, and um, who would be the voice for the voiceless. I've been blessed and I've been saved uh, for the purpose, I believe, without a doubt to be a voice for those who may not have a voice, to be hope for those who may not have hope, um, and to be able to uh, stand in the gap. And, uh, you know, I thank God for that privilege and opportunity. And I believe those are some of the reasons why I was able to escape many of those traps because God kept me and preserved me for a time such as this. And this, this 2021 is a special moment, isn't it? It's a special time. Yes, it is. I, and I received a slogan. I have a slogan. The best is yet to come in mm -hmm. 2021. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you know, that, that's what could be more hopeful than that slogan. And I think because, you know, unfortunately, sometimes horrible things uh, like the brutality of this last year that's been on the news and in full view for everybody, let's say, maybe particularly when we think about what happened in, in the creation of Black Lives Matter and the torture and, and death of George Floyd, as an example, maybe this kind of brutality has in some way you know, shaken up this, our society to its to its depth in terms of really having to look at racism and its impact and its effects. Yes, I agree. What what I believe happened, and especially with the George Floyd murder, and and let's say George Floyd murder was the um, 
the straw that broke the camel's back. Because, you know, we had um, a couple of, uh, I believe it was uh, Mr. Aubrey was murdered and hunted down in Georgia. Then we also had the murder of um, Breonna Taylor, who they entered her house. And then we have the George Floyd, um, I would say not just murder, but the George Floyd torture. And I believe what happened there, because see, usually when these murders take place, it usually takes place in a matter of just split seconds. The difference with the George Floyd torture and murder is that you were able to see just how cruel and how wicked some people are, and especially, unfortunately, some policemen, people who have been, um, and I don't want to vilify, let me say this for a disclaimer, police are necessary. I am not anti-police. I'm anti-bad policemen. Uh, give you a background. I served here in the city, in the county of Los Angeles as a deputy sheriff for 14 years here in Los Angeles. So I'm very much pro law enforcement that is in place who do what they took the oath to do. But we, with the George Floyd, what took place there, we were able to see a cop mercy with no mercy murder a man crying for his life for over eight minutes on tape although the incident was longer than that and it was a rude awakening and shocked many people and especially many white people who yes. didn't believe because many of them didn't believe that things were as bad as they were. And they believed that many blacks were just making up the stories. Yes. But it came into their living room. And let me say this also, what's very important. We always have uh, drastic change, usually when new technology comes into place. One of the things that helped the civil rights movement was the television, the media. Yes, absolutely. And today, yes, and today with the iPhone and these different phones and the internet, that's what helped the um, George Floyd incident um, making a difference. Because guess what? They could not control that. In the past, there's been some things that's probably been more horrific and horrible than the torture and murder of George Floyd. But we have people who value the system more than the people. Yes. So that and that really is it's an I would say, again, that something good that's come from such tragedy and such horror is really the phrase that is more commonly understood now, especially, I would say, among white people or people that uh, are not of, of black or brown. And that right. is this idea of, or, or for that matter, what's happening with Asians right now, um, is this idea of systematic racism. People haven't really understood 
uh, I mean, people hear that term and I think they have an, a hint of what it means, but they are really trying to grasp what is systematic racism. Yes. And, and I think also, Karen, from my experience, okay, let, let me just uh, mm -hmm. say that all Blacks don't have the same experience in America. I will say to you, for me, for the most part, the American dream has worked for me. But I can tell you that I'm one out of 10 that it works for. Basically, at least, I, I'm, this is no exaggeration, Seven, at least 70% of black males are almost doomed before they get started. Yes. Because many of them, at an early age, this system will arrest them or put records on them. And by gaining a record at an early age, and many of us are not aware of it, it eliminates you from opportunities that you don't even have a clue that you're eliminated from. Like, let's just say you get a misdemeanor on your record. Do you know at many of like the aerospace companies or places where you need to get um, security background checks, you will be disqualified. So from that alone, you can't even get that job, but you're not aware of that. So many opportunities have been eliminated um, from you and you're not even aware. And once you become aware, it's too late. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and then also just to support what you're talking about right now, is thinking, I mean, and I think, again, it's, it's sort of understood but not really processed among many people, which is that the men incarcerated right now are 50% Black. Yes. Whereas the population of the United States is 12% Black. Right. Yeah. And, and what happens you know, and, and I understand it to some degree. Let's just say, I don't expect whites especially to get it because they don't have the same experience. Like, let me just say, we may all exist here on planet Earth, but all of us don't have the same experience. So what happens? Let's say the average white person, if they go to school, get a good education. They, you know, they can usually get a good career. An African-American can do all those things and still end up in prison or end up dead like George Floyd at the hand of people who supposed to protect him. Yes, exactly. So here we are. Um, again, thinking about, you know, all the different implications that racism and how it, how it kind of travels through our lives and our society. And one of the things you had mentioned a long time ago is, is looking at, you know, where the power is in the country and thinking about something like, you know, how many are CEOs of big 500 companies, which is, of course, is what you're talking about. Right. Yeah. Fortune 500 companies, you know, what happens? And one of the things that you, most people, if you don't know, 
life um, really is made up of relationships. Now, let me share with you. I was born in a very poor family. As a matter of fact, give you a background of my parents. My mother, due to her dad dying early at the age of nine, she didn't get to finish high school because when she got to the 11th grade, she needed to go to work and help make money for the family. So guess what? Because of that, that altered her future. So there were certain opportunities she would never have because of the circumstances that she was born in. My dad was a high school um, graduate, but still, that would not have taken him where he could possibly go. And let me say this, not because they're my parents, but both of them were brilliant. And if they had mm -hmm. the opportunities that were afforded others, they could have become rocket scientists or whatever they wanted to become. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. there were certain opportunities that were never afforded to them because of the situations and circumstances they were born under. Number one, because of the color of their skin, there were certain universities they never could attend. By exactly. the, there were certain communities they never could live in because of the color of their skin. Certain positions and jobs they would never be able to attain because of the color of their skin. But so thank this, God. Mm -hmm. Thank God that there were people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who came along, which also is one of the greatest um, individuals who impacted and uh, affected my life and showed me what I could do mm -hmm. and what I could become. And through his life, it has allowed me, it, he gave me hope, let me say that. Because during the time that I was born, most of the African-Americans, and unfortunately, even today, Many of them that are on television still are depicted as buffoons, clowns, not yes. intelligent, you know. But Martin Luther King Jr., what inspired me, I had never seen a black man who was so eloquent, so intelligent. And I had never seen a black man like him who was willing to die for what he believed in. And I thank God for his life and for yeah. his inspiration because it has made a world of a difference in my life. And because of his life, that was a life that I actually wanted to model my life after. Now we know the ultimate in my life, the person that I model my life after, which also uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King did also. And that was my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, you know, that, Martin Luther King, of course, um, what can we say? You know, he was the spiritual light that you could say that the world has been trying to approach for ever since he, he you know, he walked, he walked among us and, and then in his death. And we can only hope that the conversation we're having right now and the conversations that are going on about racism that will lead to, you know, I always was inspired, especially by that comment, so many comments, of course, that he made, but one of them was, 
about the idea of judging people by the character. Content of their character. Content of their character. Rather than the color of their skin. Yes. And I do believe that our younger people are getting there. Our younger generation are, are beginning to, to practice that. But, you know, what you were describing before is the systematic racism that, yes. that we've talked about. And that, you know, involves and, and has the result of the wealth gap, the education gap, the health services gap. Um, and it, it really, you know, is, is uh, the kind of detrimental atmosphere that you're saying that so many people who are black are, are born into and, and are raised in. Yes. And, and, and the system, let, let me just say, let's look at the system. Now, believe it or not, you, there are certain networks that run as well. Like, let's just take Harvard, okay? Now, Harvard is a system within itself. And let me share with you, I should have gotten the statistics. But let's say, I wouldn't say, I'm going to be generous. Let's say 1% of the students that go to Harvard are African-American. It probably isn't that, but let's just say 1%. So right there, we fall behind because do you know that the majority of your Fortune 500 um, CEOs, they are from Harvard's um, School of Business. You understand? I think. Yes. I, yeah. You understand? So that's not a surprise. Right. You see what I'm saying? So one, if only one percent of Af of the students are African Americans, that lets you know how slim the possibilities of any of them becoming CEOs, because there's a system in place there, even through education, the network, certain networks, Harvard do some of the study. Harvard makes presidents. So don't think it was by coincidence that President Barack Obama, in which I admire and think a great deal of and have been inspired by his life. But remember, he's part of the network too. Exactly. He went to Harvard. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He was on that path. Of course. He and he was able, to, yes, able to get in the network. But see, many people don't think about that. The mm -hmm. possibility of the Af average African-American going to Harvard is slim to none. Number one, most of us don't have the money to get there. And then two, because of the um, high standards and selection, we won't get in. So we are eliminated before even we begin with many of these opportunities. Exactly. And that has to change. That's one of the things that needs to change. But what, what do you think are some of the ways in which we can begin? I mean, here, you know, it's 400 years later. And we started talking about when African-Americans were brought to our shores. Where, what can we do? Where, what can we, how can we address racism in a way that can really make a difference so that 2021 could end up being a pivotal year in that regard, especially? Well, I would say that, number one, it will begin with the African-American um, if it's going to really begin. One, we've got to, number one, begin to unite. 
We have to come together and learn to support one another and respect and love ourselves. Because if we don't do it, others will not do it. Just, I, I just give the example. I have a wonderful daughter in which I love dearly. But who should be mostly concerned about her well-being? Her mother and I, right? Yes. So until we as African-Americans become, unite, and become more concerned about our plight and began to work together to change it, it won't change. So it begins with the African-American. Then after that, after we began to work together and began to move forward and achieve, others will come along. But I, I you know, I um, place a lot of responsibility on us as individuals. Now, I'm not saying that's the only thing. I'm not letting uh, those who have privilege off the hook. But those who have privilege will never respect us until we respect ourselves. So that's one particular, that's one particular element that is essential, as you Yes. Yes. And unity. Got to unite. And the, uni and the unity. Yes. And then two, there is a duty or a responsibility, in my opinion, an obligation that America must take a look at the wrongs and the harm that it has caused the African-American people as a whole and even to this day that is causing and be truthful enough and say that we need to do things to help make things more equitable for African-Americans. And let me say, it is not no handout that we're looking for, but we will not refuse a hand up. And those of us who would like to say that we're just looking for something for nothing, don't forget slavery and where America benefited from the free labor from my ancestors, which made it possible for the acceleration of the advancement of America as a whole. Well, that's the, Leslie, when you, can, you think about slavery, isn't that the absolute epitome of something for nothing? Yes. It's human, human labor for nothing. And yes, well, you know, you're talking about really uh, rewriting a lot of history books. You're talking about really redoing a lot of curriculum in the schools so that, that the common knowledge is there about what exactly transpired during slavery, what the impacts have been of, of starting out in slavery and the contribution in spite of all the barriers, in spite of everything you've been talking about, the tremendous contributions that the black culture and people have made to being, you know, I would say make United States what it is today. I mean, you, you have mentioned something about, you know, specific contributions like Charles Drew 
emitting yes. plasma and the fact that most people, I bet if you lined up a hundred people here, they don't know that. Or right. that, you know, maybe more publicity now lately for the great architect, Paul Williams, and all the significant buildings that he built here in Los Angeles. And of course, you know, the movies that have been made, especially about the women who were mathematicians, yes. who helped made, make victory Hidden in figures. World War II. I think before that story was put into the movie, I don't think you could find hardly anyone that knew about that. Well, what also took place too, because of laws on the books, many of the patents could not be obtained by blacks of the inventions that they created because of the color of their skin. So many of the inventions in America were created and invented by blacks, but because of laws on the books, they couldn't even get patents. So whites took credit for mm -hmm. many of those inventions, even to this day. So we have a, we have a, a ways to go, but at least in in as you were saying, you know, the conversation talking about these things is the if we at least we are doing that because in the past there wasn't even a conversation really about racism and its underlying aspects, and at least that is going to begin to say, okay, we're really beginning to look at this problem and how we can change things and how we can solve things. Yes. And then also, I don't know if you've seen the movie. I And listen, I, I'm a history buff, so I tend to study history. But I just recently saw the movie um, The United States versus Billie Holiday. Now, I knew about the song Strange Fruit. You know, Strange Fruit is actually a song that she made while traveling through the South, from what I understand. And she happened to be traveling through the South and she saw where she had come across where some black men had just been um, lynched. And that's where that song. Okay, yes. Reverend Bowie, we're, we are back for part two. Yes. So please continue your description of the story of Billie Holiday and her travels in the South. Yeah. Recently, there was a movie um, produced um, uh, called The United States versus Billie Holiday. Now, I knew about her song, Strange Fruit, but I didn't know the history behind the song uh, in which it was a song that she wrote uh, while traveling through the South she had um, stumbled across where some black men had just been lynched from a tree. And she wrote the song, Strange Fruit. If you get the opportunity, go listen to it because that's what she's singing about. And she called it the Strange Fruit because the black men were hanging from the tree. It's a painful song to listen to. Yes, it is. And But I did not know that that song was used for an anti-lynching campaign and was a song with great momentum that it had um, gained momentum from people throughout the nation against, um, you know, standing against lynching, human lynching, and especially of the black men. And the FBI 
began to harass mm. Billy Holiday. And I would even say there's a strong possibility that they could have even been responsible for taking her life, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so um, it's, a, it's an amazing story. I believe Aja Day is the name of the um, actress who does an outstanding job. But I think that it's a story that we need to, uh, everyone needs to know or understand. Let me say this too. Part of the challenge with America, why America will not take responsibility or address much of what's in place, because much of the history in America is a lie. (laughs) And that's what I meant by rewriting the history books, rewriting the school curriculum. Uh, And not, yeah, it's a combination of not telling the truth and leaving out, leaving out a lot of things, a lot of of, of contributions that so many different people have made. And, you know, um, we know that racism has always been a part of America and maybe America can never be really what we, what we are, what we aspire to be. We can't be the, the great, the great country that we know we have the potential to be if we don't really look at this, admit this, and begin to do something about it. Right. Another thing we have to understand, see, America, and I thank God, let me say this, I'm proud to call myself an American. And for those who may hear this, I want you to know that, number one, I have followed the system and the rules, and it has worked for me. I am a veteran, United States Marine Corps. I've served in the United States Marine Corps. You've already heard, um, if you've listened to the first episode, that I have also served in law enforcement. Now I am now a minister, a pastor uh, here, you know, a Christian pastor, who one of my main focuses of my ministry is fighting for social justice. I want to say that I'm not here anti-America, I love America and even, and listen, I wasn't drafted. I volunteered willing to serve my country with the possibility if it was necessary to give my life for this country. And I want to say that America is still one of the greatest nations in the world, but America will never become all that it could become as long as it continues to one, perpetuate and promote the propaganda and lies that exist as long as we have people and leadership, particularly our Senate, that will not stand up against attacks of our own capital that took place on the 6th of January until we have, until we have leaders who are willing to make the necessary sacrifices to right the wrongs, or at least try to right the wrongs, because you can never right all the wrongs because you can't turn back the hands of time. But we can rewrite the future if we choose to. It's it's almost as if we have, you know, like the Star Wars movie, we keep we keep referring to movies, but you know, of course that's that may be one of the great ways for people to be educated or to become more educated 
is is that the Star Wars movie where it has the you know the forces of good and the forces of evil, and we're we're kind of you know we're kind of there, aren't we? I mean, this especially this last year, this year, this tragic year of pandemic, where we've seen, you know, terrible brutality against black men and women, and we've seen this incredible rise of white hate, white extremists who are just so full of hate. And then at the same time, we have this new United States administration with President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, who have made a commitment to go the higher, to go to the higher ground, you know, yes. to move us, to move us uh, forward for the force of good. So we have, we've had all of that happening. Um, in this in this last year and it's it's you know really we're maybe we're we're at a fork right now we can make a choice as a people as a country we can make a choice which direction are we going to go i also karen and i want and the thing that is most important in my life is my faith so you will find me going back to that one what i like about Joe Biden. Not because someone has told me, but I've watched, like I said, I've watched people's lives. He is a man who does all that he can to live his faith. His life is governed by what he says he believes in. And in his faith, he believes in justice. In his faith, he believes that all human beings are created in the image and the likeness of God in his faith. And he's made statements. He has no problems in saying that we need to make things right that we've done wrong. And so he's taken bold steps on immigration. He's taken bold statements as he even said out of his mouth to the African-American community that I owe you big time because if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be president. And he dares to take the steps that's necessarily that that are necessary to be taken. And I think that he and I thank God for his leadership and Kamala Harris leadership also. I don't want to discount Kamala Harris. Uh, she is a great and outstanding woman. And I've been blessed enough to actually meet Kamala Harris and even serve her. Um, and let me make mention, I served for approximately five years at one of the most prominent churches in this nation, Holman United Methodist Church, where I had the opportunity to be able to do some great work in fighting for justice. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to an individual that is not always given his due respect and that's Reverend James Lawson, who I was blessed enough to actually, although I knew him, but was able to be able to establish a friendship with uh, um, Reverend James Lawson. And for those of you who don't know who he is, he was the person who uh, basically was the great strategist behind the nonviolent movement and philosophy and strategists behind the civil rights movement. And that's why I say that 
for my life. I've, I've been very fortunate. I have come in contact with people such as James, Law James Lawson, who have helped shape not only America, but shape the world and have been able to talk with them. It's not like where it's someone you read about. I've been blessed enough to be able to sit down and have conversations with him about the movement, the civil rights movement, and for him to also pour into my life through his wisdom as I'm able to sit and talk. So I'm thankful. And let me also say one of our great Americans that just um, transitioned, and that's the person of John Lewis. And while serving at Holman United Methodist Church, I was blessed enough to meet John Lewis and host him personally, you know. And so, you know, I've had some great privileges. And since I'm talking about John Lewis, let me share one of his great quotes. He says, I believe that you see something that you want to get done. You cannot give up and you cannot give in. Reverend Bowie, that is a great way to end this conversation today. I look forward to talking with you on this subject many times in the future. Thank you so much for being part of this program and for enriching it and for all the work that you do to make our world a better place. <laughs>